If we could all take our uh, chairs here, uh, we'll, we'll get started with this uh, Federal Society program on Basel. Uh, my name is Bert Ely. Uh, I'm a member of the panel. Uh, the only reason I'm up here right now is that Dean Reuter from the Federal Society uh, staff uh, couldn't be here at 10 o'clock this morning, so he asked me to get things uh, going. Uh, first of all, you all want to welcome you on behalf of the Federal Society. This uh, a program by the Financial Services Practice Group on uh, Basel, in which we're going to be trying to uh, ask uh, and hopefully answer some very basic questions about the Basel process. Uh, we have two panels bracketing a luncheon speech by Senator Chuck Hagel. Uh, the first panel will uh, run until around 11.45. We'll have a brief break. Uh, we'll have lunch, uh, I presume, here in, in this room. Um, and then... Uh, uh, Senator Hagel will, will speak to us in order to, uh, to keep things moving right along. Uh, the second panel will start at 1 o'clock and run until uh, 2.30, uh, and we'll get that panel started during coffee and uh, dessert, so we won't have uh, uh, an extended uh, lunch session. Um, did also want to remind everybody that the, the uh, proceedings today are being recorded, uh, and they will be um, uh, available as an audio format, not video, but audio, on the uh, uh, Federal Society website within a short time after the conclusion of the session, and also um, uh, a podcast of it will be available. Uh, Dean tells me that generally they get on, the, on the, an average of 800 um, uh, uh, downloads of uh, their proceedings. So even though our, our numbers here may be uh, a little small this morning, there will be many others who will... Um, uh, be able to uh, uh, listen to and hopefully enjoy the, uh, uh, the proceedings uh, today. And also, of course, uh, the way we have this set up is that in addition to a presentation by each uh, presenter, uh, we're going to have uh, ample time for uh, questions and answers on this discussion. So I'm going to turn this over now at this time to Charles Miller, who is the moderator of the first panel, who will take it forward from there. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. Uh, again, uh, I'm Charles Miller. I'm here today to, uh, to moderate uh, the, the, uh, the first panel uh, discussing uh, Basel. Um, and I also, also uh, agreed to offer a, a quick uh, overview of the history of the Basel process uh, just to kind of set the framework for the debate. I'm sure that, uh, that for all the folks in the room here, that really isn't necessary, but, uh, but agree to do it. So we'll go over that quickly uh, uh, in any event. Um, the, uh, the first Basel Accord uh, was implemented in, in uh, 1988, uh, and it came out of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision at the Bank of International Settlement, uh, which then was comprised of the G7 countries. Uh, the, the format that, uh, that, that came out of the, uh, Basel I was simple. It was an 8% uh, risk-based capital requirement um, that, uh, that required financial institutions to maintain 8% uh, regulatory, regulatory capital floor. Um, it had little practical uh, impact in the United States because, uh, as you know, uh, most banks uh, try to maintain a 10% uh, capital uh, level in, in any event. Um, and uh, the, the Basel Accord was initially intended to be uh, implemented only for internationally active banks. However, because of the simplicity of the process, it was quickly expanded to national banks and then expanded beyond uh, the Basel uh, countries uh, to, to be implemented 
by regulators worldwide. Um, a few years after being implemented, the, the, the Basel I Accord uh, began to be criticized as being too simplistic uh, and, and being a static regime uh, that, uh, that did not adequately reflect the risk that was being faced uh, by various uh, banking institutions. Um, some uh, viewed it as, uh, as not adequately uh, recognizing the risks of uh, regulatory arbitrage that, uh, that could exist through securitization and other things that, uh, that had developed uh, about the time of the first Basel I Accord as far as banking practices go. Um, those from, uh, from the large banking sides uh, thought that the, the capital accord did not adequately reflect the reduction of risk of, of practices of diversification uh, type of, of activity that banks uh, participate in, and you know, for that matter, simply the, the size uh, of the institution. Uh, if it's a larger institution, it, it uh, can bear risk uh, for uh, a longer period of time. Um, so, with that, uh, came the negotiations that began uh, the Basel II uh, process. Uh, it began in the, the mid '90s and took to 2004 before there was a final product uh, that was released uh, from the Basel Committee. Basel II is intended to be much more risk sensitive. It is based upon three pillars. Uh, the, the, three, the first pillar and the most important pillar is that, uh, is that capital be uh, risk sensitive uh, to the particular financial institution. Uh, the second and third pillars uh, get a lot less uh, discussion and, uh, and that will probably be reflected today. But the second pillar is, is adequate supervision, uh, which has an interesting tre- uh, stress test that, that uh, is, is meant to uh, kind of offset some of the risk-sensitive uh, nature of the first pillar. And then finally, the third pillar is public disclosure. Uh, the, the first pillar of the Basel II Accord um, is uh, broken down into uh, three types of credit risk. Uh, the first, uh, or excuse me, three types of risk. The first is, uh, is credit risk, uh, operational risk is the second, and the third is market risk. Um, and for both credit risk and operational risk, there are three approaches available under Basel uh, II. Uh, uh, two of those um, get short stripped in the United States simply because they're not considered to be currently considering uh, implementing these. Uh, approaches in the United States. But under credit risk, uh, the most basic approach is called the standardized approach. Um, and the, the accord itself, where the banking supervisors uh, are positioned to assign weight uh, to, uh, to different credit activities and different lending activities. Um, and it's simply designed to improve upon Basel I by having some graduation of, of, of risk assessment. Uh, the second approach, the intermediate approach, is the foundational uh, internal uh, ratings-based approach, and with this, uh, the banks begin to become more involved in, in, in regulating themselves uh, because the bank is uh, permitted to assess the risk uh, of default, the probability of default for commercial and governmental loans. Uh, this doesn't apply to retail, um, and then banks would also be given credit for uh, risk mitigation uh, uh, activities such as uh, considering the collateral or if the bank is insured. Um, the, the third approach, which is the only one being considered uh, for the United States, is the advanced uh, internal ratings-based uh, approach. In addition to just setting their own probability default, banks uh, would also have the ability to, uh, to determine the duration of the exposure um, and the, uh, the ex- risk of exposure at, at, at the time of default, uh, the loss given default, 
Um, and so there are a lot more variables in play that the banks are allowed to consider. Uh, this would apply to, uh, to commercial and governmental loans individually, uh, and retail loans would be allowed to be accept, uh, excuse me, uh, assessed in, in bundles. Um, again, there is a three-tier approach to operational risk, which is the basic indicator approach, which is simply 15 percent uh, flat, um, uh, essentially tax that, that, that the banks would be required to maintain based upon gross income uh, averaged over the preceding three years. The standardized approach is similar to the basic approach, except for it is tiered based upon business line. And then finally, most relevant to the United States is the advanced uh, measurement approach, uh, which permits the bank to uh, to use any reasonable approach that, that it finds is uh, is proper to to determine its risk. Uh, and again, under this advanced approach from the operational risk, as well as the advanced approach, um, for the, the capital risk, a bank is allowed to offset for, uh, for, for insurance um, and, uh, and, and, and other uh, mitigating factors. Now, implementation in the United States, as we mentioned, uh, the United States is not uh, uh, on board uh, complete with Basel II with the other countries. Uh, instead, it is uh, considering implementing only the, the advanced approaches under both systems, um, and this would be required of banks with uh, capital um, excuse me, uh, of um, exposure of over $250 billion or uh, international exposure of over $10 billion. We're thinking that would affect approximately 10 to 20 banks, uh, with other banks having the, the right to opt in. Um, after the, uh, the quantitative impact study number four that was conducted in the United States, it was determined that, uh, that a large percentage of, of these uh, banks uh, would be able to significantly reduce uh, their, their capital uh, requirements under Basel II under the advanced approaches, going from uh, from the 8 percent that's now standard down to 6 or possibly even down to, uh, to below 5 percent. Um, the, uh, the banks in the United States that would not be implementing Basel II are concerned that they'd be left behind and be at an unfair uh, disadvantage to those that would be implementing it, and that led to, uh, to discussions and the possible limitation of Basel IA, uh, which is a U.S., uh, again, only a U.S. Uh, approach that, uh, that would allow the, the non-implementing banks uh, to, uh, uh, to still enter a process to where they could uh, expand the type of collateral that they would consider uh, when, when determining risk. Uh, also look at uh, outside credit ratings, and, uh, and it seems most significantly to these banks uh, <coughs> use loan-to-value for, for mortgages and other uh, uh, exposures to, to set uh, the risk capital that they would be main, uh, required to maintain. Um, there are, uh, are, have been several criticisms of this entire process, uh, the, the most foremost of, uh, of which is that it's, a, is that it's overly complicated. Um, within the United States, there's some conflicts with, uh, with the labor, leverage ratios, which uh, some of our panelists will discuss. Um, uh, there is uh, still concerns about a level playing field, uh, concerns about whether or not uh, this will be given unfair advantage to, to larger banks. Um, on the international front, there are concerns about how this accord will be implemented between home and host countries. Uh, there are concerns of uh, this uh, causing uh, uh, pro-cyclical effects as far as, uh, as making recessions that may uh, occur worse and, uh, and other concerns of implementation. Um, and so with that, with that introduction, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and introduce our first panelist uh, that is going to speak today. Uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Peter Wallison uh, is, is currently with the 
American Enterprise Institute, and he joined them in 1990. Uh, prior to being with, uh, with AEI, uh, Mr. Wallace practiced at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, both here in, in Washington, D.C., and in New York. Um, and uh, it, while at Gibson, Dunn, he was at practice banking, corporate, and finance law. Uh, prior to entering private practice, Mr. Wallison held uh, several government positions, including being general counsel to the Treasury Department, uh, where he was uh, intimately involved in deregularization in the uh, 1980s. Uh, from there, he moved uh, over to the White House, where he was uh, White House counsel to, to President Reagan. Um, and so uh, Mr. Wallison has an excellent uh, history of experience uh, in the field of financial regulation. With that, Mr. Wallison. Thanks a lot, Charles. Um, and I want to thank the Federal Society for uh, having a conference on something like Basel II because uh, it's, uh, it really hasn't gotten as much attention as it should. It's quite important and uh, it's very complicated. Uh, and as a result of that, it's not covered much in the media. And in fact, uh, my own experience from having written some things about it is that many people at banks don't understand it. And I had the odd experience when I sent out a, something I write for AI called the Financial Services Outlook on Basel II, and I got emails back from some of my friends in the bank saying, gee, this is, this is terrific. I now understand what Basel II is about. Um, and uh, they were among the senior people in management of the banks, but were not involved, actually, fortunately, in uh, the capital regulation aspect of it. So it is a very complicated area, and it's one that um, I think it's worthwhile for a lot of people to understand, uh, because there will, I think, be a significant debate about it coming up in, uh, in Congress and among the regulatory agencies. And uh, the more the public understands, the better off I think we'll all be. The title of my um, remarks today is um, a bridge too far. I think it's in the materials that you have, the, at least the uh, slides. And that comes out of that uh, financial services outlook that I wrote. Um, and the reason I, t I entitled it that is that I, I do think that it, ha it bears some resemblance to the World War II issue when the, uh, the army, the British army, went a bridge too far in an effort to, um, to uh, uh, attack the Nazis and got trapped. Um, I think... Basel II, as I will explain, has some virtues, but I don't think it's really yet ready for prime time. And insofar as it will have a major effect on the capitalization, or at least the regulatory capital requirements of our banks, it's important um, that it be in the best possible shape. Now, what is, why do we have regulatory capital for banks? Um, banks... Um, if they were not regulated and insured, banks would be like every other kind of business in our economy, and that is the market would set their capital. Um, the reason that that happens is the market will not lend any money to any, any kind of institution unless it has confidence that the institution has the protection against losses that comes from capital. Government regulates banks, insures banks for a variety of reasons we won't get into this morning, but because of that, that creates moral hazard. And because of moral hazard, um, the government has to protect itself against the losses that would occur at banks because 
market discipline doesn't exist when um, it does be, it may exist, but it, it's severely limited when the banks are regulated and insured by the government. So in a way, capital requirements are a way of the government protecting itself against the problems that it creates by regulating and insuring banks. Now, when the regulators set capital levels, um, these are necessarily arbitrary, especially when they're the same for all banks. One of the um, things about the market setting uh, capital for banks, and it, and it would, as I say, if they were not regulated insured and insured, is that the market would have some way of they would insist on information, which the banks would have to divulge, and then the market would decide how risky they believe the portfolios of the banks actually are, and that would, that would um, set the capital ratios, and they would all be different. Um, there would be some banks that would be taking presumably risky kinds of um, business plans, um, approaching uh, lending in one way, and banks that would be more conservative and prudent, and they would have different capital ratios because the market would recognize this. Well, uh, since that isn't done, can't be done, uh, when banks are regulated and insured, the regulators set capital levels. They can set them arbitrarily, and, and that's in fact what they had been doing before Basel I. Um, and people recognized, of course, at that point, that the risks that banks were taking were different, so they ought to be treated differently in some way. Uh, and so Basel I was the first attempt by the regulators, not just the United States, but regulators all in, in all the developed countries, um, to conform capital levels to the riskiness of the portfolios of the banks. It, it pioneered the idea of risk-based capital. It's pretty primitive, and that was one of the problems with Basel I. It, for example, it required that all corporate lending be, be given a 100% risk, uh, um, risk weight in, in calculating the risk-based capital. Now, all corporate borrowers are not the same. Some are AAA, few, but some, and some are B, and they ought to be treated somewhat differently in terms of the risk, but that isn't what Basel I did. So over time, people said, well, we really should make Basel I more, refi more refined and start dealing more effectively with risk. Um, so that, again, the capital levels would be adjusted in some way for the risks that the banks were actually um, running. Now, as Charles said, it was advanced, really, Basel II was advanced in 1999, and it has evolved over time uh, to what Charles referred to as the advanced internal ratings-based approach. There are other approaches, as he said, but the one... I'm going to focus on mostly today is the advanced internal ratings-based approach because that's the one that our most sophisticated banks, the ones that really, if there were to be a problem, might be the sources of systemic risk in our economy. So those are the ones we want to be most careful about when we worry about um, capital regulation. So what basically the advanced internal ratings approach means um, again, Charles mentioned some of these. I just want to emphasize the two points, and that is the bank gets an opportunity not only to um, assess the risk of default for each of its borrowers, but then the loss that the bank would suffer given default. These estimates are then, under this approach, 
plugged into a formula that is established by the Basel Committee of Regulators and out comes, at least for credit risk, um, the permissible capital level for a bank. Now, it's important to remember that there are other pillars here that are involved in the setting of risk. This pillar, that was pillar one, there's pillar two, there's pillar three, and in those areas, uh, there isn't any formula uh, of the kind that I just mentioned. Um, the regulators get a chance then to go in and assess how the bank is doing on things like market risk and operational risk and interest rate risk and decide to add um, or adjust the capital that is produced by the Pillar 1 credit risk formula. And that so there, that mediates to some extent the dangers that come from relying entirely on a formula. And that is really the problem that I have with Basel II. It is a formula. Um, it's a model. And, models. and it's a model that is attempting to replicate the real world. The real world would, be, would, uh, would produce a set of, of uh, would produce capital ratios for... Um, banks based on, as I said before, what it perceives to be the risks. Um, the real world is a very complicated place, and we have had very unpleasant um, experiences in the past with models that are attempting to replicate the real world. And I would just raise for you one that constantly comes up, and that is over 50 years, we have had a model of the economy. And each time there is an adjustment in the, ca in, in the tax system in the United States, the model of the economy is, oh, it tells us, OMB has a model and um, the, the congressional offices have a model, and it tells us what the result is going to be in terms of the revenues of the government. And that will then produce uh, the deficit number. In normal years, there's a deficit. Well... If you've been following all of this in the newspapers, the model has been off by billions and billions of dollars. For, for 2006, the deficit was supposed to be $441 billion. It turned out to be $280 billion. Based on this, in this case, this was the model that was run by OMB. Now, if over 50 years of refining a model again and again to take account of how tax changes occur, we cannot at, still at this point uh, accurately project what the revenues of the government are going to be when we have a tax change, I think that's something to ponder if we want to turn over uh, the capitalization of our major banks to a model. So we're placing a lot of faith in a model. And uh, I think when my fellow panelists get up to talk about it, uh, there'll be a lot of detail about what comes out of this. But one of the worrisome events was the fourth uh, quantitative impact study, QIS-4, which was sort of an experiment to see how this modeling would work and how, how the banks would risk weight their various assets. Um, there was a huge difference in QIS-4 uh, between how uh, several of the banks, uh, there were seven in the, I think, in the, in the list that, were, that I'd seen, and George, I, George French of the FDIC will cover this probably more carefully, but there were, there were huge differences in how those banks 
uh, assess the risk of exactly the same portfolios, a portfolio of mortgages. I think it ranged from 5% to about 75% risk weight for the same portfolio. Now, that is very worrisome because that, as I indicated, gets plugged into, eventually gets plugged into the, the Basel formulas, and that produces a capital number. And if, there, if the banks have such a different way of assessing risk weight of their own portfolios, which are, in this case, the same portfolio, it raises serious questions about whether um, the Basel capital ratios, as produced by Basel II, um, will ever really be effective. So what do we do about this? I'm not sure it's necessary, given all of the intellectual work that's gone into the business of setting, setting up Basel II. Uh, it's been on now for almost, well, eight, nine years, and has been um, refined and refined and changed and so forth. I think um, we should allow it to go forward. But it's important that we have one thing that keeps it uh, that functions, in my view, as kind of an insurance policy, and that is the leverage ratio. The leverage ratio is really a very simple idea. It's very crude, um, but it's a simple ratio of equity capital to assets. And if we keep the leverage ratio in place, it does protect us against a real failure of this modeling system. And we ought to keep it in place as sort of an insurance policy until we are reasonably sure that Basel is actually working well. Um, so at least the view I have is we can go ahead with Basel II, but keep the leverage ratio to make sure that um, things do not get out of hand. Now, there is one other way that I'd like to just uh, uh, talk about just for a couple of minutes or a minute on the issue of how we would otherwise establish a capital ratio. Um, what we're doing here with Basel II, I think, is using a model, using technology, using computers, that kind of thing. I do think it is worth considering also a market-based system for doing this. And in that respect, um, the Shadow Financial Regulatory Committee, three, four years ago, proposed the use of subprime, uh, sub, <laughs> not subprime, subordinated debt. Um, the, the debt would be issued by banks. It would not be, it, would, it could not be bailed out. It could not be um, bailed out by the government. And anyone who bought the debt would um, be, uh, would be bearing exactly the same risks as would exist if there were no government insurance or government regulation. And as the, as the, the, the debt is traded, we would begin to see a movement in the interest rate on that, desk, on that debt. And as the interest rate rose, it would indicate that there is concern among the holders of the debt about the risks that the banks are taking. That would be a very strong signal, I think, to the regulators to take a look at the bank's portfolios and find out what it is about those portfolios that is worrying the market. So Basel I is one way of, uh, Basel II is one way of proceeding. Um, it has certain technical attraction about it, especially to, to um, people who like to manipulate models and computers. On the other hand, uh, it seems to me the market is always a better judge of risks and can cause the uh, banks to disclose more information in order to keep people buying their subordinated debt. And that's another way we ought to think about going. If it turns out 
because there's a lot of momentum for Basel II now. But if it turns out that Basel II isn't working, um, I suggest we go back and take a look at this sub-debt idea. Thanks very much. All right, thank you, Peter. Uh, next, I uh, have the pleasure of introducing the man who introduced me. Uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Bert-Eli has uh, consulted on depository insurance and banking structure issues uh, since 1981. He was an early predictor of the SNL crisis, uh, as well as uh, the non-crisis in commercial banking uh, in 1991. Uh, Bert continues to monitor uh, conditions in the banking industry, as well as monetary uh, policy issues. Uh, in, recent issue, in recent years, he has uh, focused on uh, government-sponsored enterprises, uh, including uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and if you uh, were involved with the conversation with him earlier today, the uh, farm credit system. Uh, and he has uh, co-authored a monograph on how to privatize uh, these three government-sponsored entities and has uh, helped draft uh, legislation uh, to cross-guarantee concepts for privatizing bank regulation and its uh, related deposit insurance and systematic risk. Uh, Bert holds an MBA from Harvard uh, Business School and a bachelor's degree from uh, Case Western. Thank you, Charles. I might say with that regard to that uh, GSC monograph, the lead author on it was our previous uh, uh, speaker, uh, one of the many times that Peter and I have uh, collaborated on things. And I'm going to bring uh, much the uh, the same perspective, but with some important differences uh, with uh, with Peter's remarks about uh, uh, about Boston. I might add that there a copy of my PowerPoint slides that I'm speaking from are included in the handout materials. In, in my opinion, the, the Basel process has not addressed some important threshold questions regarding bank capital. And following up on a point that Peter made, in my opinion, it is not too late to put these threshold questions back up on the table and to do a fundamental rethink of uh, Basel. We're not so far down the Basel road that uh, uh, there can't be some fundamental rethinking. And let me just go over those four questions very briefly. First of all, why does government care about bank capital uh, levels? Well, banking capital absorbs uh, losses and reduces the probability of a bank becoming insolvent. That is, its liabilities exceed the market values of its assets. But, of course, that's an issue that comes up in all business enterprises, is the whole issue of, of maintaining solvency. So the second question, why should government care about banks becoming insolvent? Uh, and this is where banks are seen as, as, as special. Uh, well, bank insolvency causes losses to a bank's creditors, as it can in other uh, businesses, but it also can cause losses to depositors, which is of a great public policy concern, particularly if those losses lead to a run on the banking system and to a systemic financial crisis. So that's the public policy uh, rationale. Now, perhaps the third question, I think, is one that uh, very few people have thought about, and that is, what presumption underlies all bank capital standards? Well, my interpretation is that each bank must float on its own bottom. That is, its own capital must forestall all but the remotest likelihood of insolvency. And as you dig into the uh, Basel uh, formulas, as I unfortunately have on occasion, you, 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 that message comes through. So the, the, the final question I pose is, is float on your own bottom the best approach to take towards preventing bank insolvency? And that is a question that has not been asked about Basel, much less answered. Now, uh, in my opinion, uh, uniform international capital standards for banks are a bad idea. 
which is why I think Basel just ought to be rejected. First of all, uniform capital standards impede innovation and impair banking, uh, in, uh, banking efficiency. Uh, and in particular, it discourages individual countries from developing new failure prevention methods, particularly as they relate to uh, capital. Basel should not be seen as the, uh, as, as the final word on preventing bank insolvency. And in my opinion, it also focuses too much uh, regulatory attention on a bank's own capital as the basis for preventing its insolvency. I think something we see in the markets, and particularly we've learned or relearned in recent decades, and that is that competition breeds innovation and efficiency. And in the, cap, in the bank regulatory area, competition could lead to as, as yet untried devices for protecting depositors and other bank creditors while preventing financial system crises. Uh, some have expressed to me the concern that competition in this area will set off a race to the bottom. Uh, in my opinion, it will be uh, the opposite, a race to the top, if taxpayers are clearly on the hook for government regulatory uh, failures, as they, uh, they should be. So I reject the idea that the absence of international capital standards is going to set off a race to the bottom. But even if international bank capital standards were desirable, in my opinion, they're not practical. Uh, standards will not bring cross-border uniformity in capital standards unless implemented through enforceable treaties. And Basel is not a treaty. Uh, each country, therefore, will tweak a supposedly international capital standard in crucial ways, which is why we will not have a uniform standard. But also it's important to keep in mind that national differences impede comprehensive international standards. And these differences exist for uh, a, a variety of, uh, of, of reasons. One of the things that I think is most notable uh, in its absence from both Basel I as well as the uh, uh, innumerable variations of Basel II is the absence of a loss reserving standard. Now, I have been told by insiders who have been involved in this process, the reason for that is because the Japanese when, uh, did not want such a standard uh, when Basel I was being formulated. And for anybody who is familiar with the Japanese banking system at that time, one can understand why the Japanese did not want uh, a loss reserving standard. But also, the, uh, it's evident that, or, and obvious that the application, interpretation, and enforcement of an international standard will vary across countries. It simply isn't going to be done in a uniform way. So I see all of these as, uh, as, as fundamental reasons why it simply is not practical to have a uniform standard. But all of these uh, problems are uh, greatly compounded by Basel's formulaic complexities, a point that Peter made, and I assume many in this room have actually tried to work their way through some of the, uh, uh, through some of the Basel formulas. And in my opinion, this, is the, this inevitable complexity is a product of a one-size-must-fit-all capital standard, that this is the fundamental problem with uh, Basel, despite the effort to, to tailor it, that in fact it's still one-size-must-fit-all. And... Um, and so uh, we have a complexity, though, that is due to differences that are attributable to a, vari for, uh, a variety of factors. First of all, national laws and banking practices differ greatly because banking systems have emerged in, uh, in different countries in different ways, to a great extent reflecting uh, the legal system in those countries. Second of all, we have an enormous variation in the size of banks. A $100 million asset bank. 
uh, is a very viable bank. There are, we have hundreds of, uh, if not several thousand in this country, that are particularly viable in smaller markets. And yet we also have uh, a number of banks now in the world with over a trillion dollars of assets. What you think about, a hundred, a, one, one trillion dollars is 10,000 times 100 million in assets. And yet we're trying to fit both types of institutions under a one-size-must-fit-all capital standard. It simply will not work. Also, we have many uh, banking business models. As is true in any kind of competitive industry, not everybody tries to do it the same way. You have specialization. Again, we have a one-size-must-fit-all standard trying to uh, accommodate all of these different um, uh, business models. And then also we have numerous types of banking risks, and some banks take more of one than of others. And let me cite operational risk as is, uh, is, is one which has been particularly uh, controversial, uh, and it's one that I think in many ways is overrated for uh, as a problem in larger banks. Uh, uh, just uh, uh, yesterday, uh, I'm sorry, on Friday, uh, Bank of Montreal has a trading loss of up to $400 million. Article in the American uh, Banker about this. Uh, we've had trading losses larger than that. A $400 million loss would uh, would wipe out uh, even a, a billion-dollar bank, possibly even sink a $5 billion bank. Well, I made these calculations for Bank of Montreal. It looks like it whacked there uh, about or wiped out about 30 to 40 days of earnings. Painful, yes. The stock took a hit. Does it put the bank under? Not by any means whatsoever. I would argue that operational risk is actually probably the, the single greatest risk facing smaller banks because that's usually what's associated with, uh, with fraud. And uh, fraud will sink a small bank. Uh, it might cause a few people to get fired in a, in a very large bank. Now, what are the problems caused by this complexity? First of all, compliance costs skyrocket, and we see all kinds of numbers around as to what the cost is of implementing and maintaining Basel. I'm sure there are folks here in the room who can uh, address that much uh, more authoritatively than I can. Second of all, loopholes uh, multiply as complexity increases. And this is why Basel keeps getting more and more uh, complicated as much as anything else to deal with loophole issues as it is uh, the differences in, in banking practices and sizes. And I think there are a couple of very interesting parallels here that give us an idea of where Basel's going. One is GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles, which I think are increasingly real, uh, recognized as far too uh, uh, complex and expensive. And, of course, the best example of all is the Internal uh, Revenue Code. I might add that I'm, I'm not a tax expert by any means, but I've been doing some uh, research on behalf of a local club I belong to uh, in which I've been going through the Internal Revenue Code. I actually find the Internal Revenue Code and the related regulations a lot easier to read than Basel or GAAP. Uh, and uh, even though it's, uh, is, uh, it, it really is not that badly written. Um, now, let me touch on the leverage uh, ratio, which uh, Peter talked on. This is one of the uh, few areas over many years where Peter and I have had a, uh, a significant disagreement about something. Uh, the, first of all, for those who aren't familiar with the leverage ratio, it is not risk sensitive. I emphasize not risk sensitive. It's simply capital, uh, 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 total assets divided into capital. The key thing about the leverage ratio is it clearly discriminates against the bank owning or holding in portfolio low risk uh, assets. Uh, because the capital uh, charge associated with it far exceeds how much uh, would be needed. 
And so banks are now putting the situation under Basel, and it gets worse under Basel, too, of being unwilling to hold low-risk assets, such as high-quality home mortgages, and there are still a few of those around, uh, unless, they can, unless those low-risk assets can be offset with, uh, with high-risk assets, such as uh, credit card uh, receivables. And therefore, what the leverage ratio does is it encourages an asset mix that minimizes the difference in required capital under both standards. So you have to calculate how much capital you need under uh, the leverage ratio as well as the uh, risk-based uh, standards. And, of course, in the U.S., uh, uh, we actually have uh, 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 two different risk-based capital measures. So you've got to hit all three uh, uh, measures in order to be well capitalized or adequately capitalized. My assessment increasingly is that the leverage ratio becomes the controlling capital uh, standard. And I might add that uh, included in the handout materials is an article from yesterday's American banker, ex-controller Bob Clark shares bankers Basel II gripes. And he makes exactly uh, this, uh, this, uh, this same uh, point. And what Basel II does, which many see as an advance over Basel I, is it increases the granularity of risk assessment. That is, risk is sliced and diced much more uh, 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 finely. But I would argue that as that granularity increases, so too does the incentive to sh shed lower risk assets. And I've been told that by banks. I was surprised one large bank told me they were, they were uh, actually selling off a lot of uh, good high-quality arms. Uh, they hold in portfolio, even under the present capital standard, because of the capital charge associated under the leverage ratio uh, uh, with those arms. So what I think is, uh, is incredibly perverse is that the increased granularity of Basel II is going to lead to riskier banks as lower risk assets are sold or securitized, which is why I, uh, key reason why I don't like the leverage ratio. Now, Further compounding this are the uh, uh, are the Basel's or excuse me the FDIC's new risk-based deposit insurance uh, uh, premiums. Again, another wonderful document to to read if you're uh, suffering from insomnia as to how uh, those premiums are going to be calculated. Now, the thing that's interesting about both the standard, capital standards and risk-based premiums is that they should minimize the probability of a bank failing, that is, becoming insolvent. Basel mandates a deep capital cushion to prevent failures, and the risk-based premiums theoretically incent a bank to increase capital or reduce risk so as to reduce premiums and, and also the likelihood of failure. Now, one virtue of deposit insurance is it rejects the float-on-your-own-bottom uh, theory of banking capital by saying that if a bank does become insolvent, the capital of others will be tapped to absorb losses. But... The FDIC premium structure suffers from two fundamental problems. It, too, is a one-size-must-fit-all approach that, of course, is typical of government regulation. And also, it's a government monopoly trying to set prices. And prices, of course, can only be set uh, in a competitive uh, marketplace. And therefore, in my opinion, what the FDIC is imposing on U.S. banks uh, in the form of this new risk-based premium system is a second costly duplicative compliance burden for banks. So U.S. banks are going to be saddled with two things that uh, uh, banks elsewhere in the world don't have, and 
that is both the leverage ratio and these new risk-based uh, premiums. Uh, that's a lot of costs other banks uh, elsewhere uh, do not have, and I worry about the competitive implications on that. Let me close by offering you what are, are my thoughts about, you know, what is an answer to this uh, imbroglio that we're in. First of all, I think we have to view capital standards as a means to an end and not the end itself. Insolvency prevention is the end. It's also important to keep in mind that insolvency is not a sudden event, except in small banks. A small bank can be closed tomorrow because of a fraud uh, that uh, was discovered. We have innumerable examples of that in the United States. Um, big banks don't fail quickly. They, they, and even if we take a look at some of the biggest failures, Continental Illinois is an excellent example. That was one that was sliding downhill for years. In my opinion, insolvency is best prevented if market forces intervene before insolvency occurs through a sale, a management turnaround, recapitalization, or other uh, uh, corrective action. And further, in my opinion, the market value, the book value of a, stock's, of a bank's common stock is the best measure of a bank's probability of failure. And this is where, again, Peter and I differ. I think the sub-debt proposal uh, simply does not work because the market for sub-debt is not as active or as nuanced as it is for uh, uh, capital uh, uh, stock. Um, and, and by that, I mean the, the, the common stock, not the preferred. My experience over the years in looking at banks and trying to predict failures is that when the price to, uh, a price to book ratio drops even as low as one and a half or one, that signals serious problems uh, in the bank because, in effect, the, uh, uh, in the market sees losses in the bank's balance sheet that uh, 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 totally wipe out any intangible value the bank might have by virtue of its uh, uh, deposit uh, uh, franchise. Um, and in my opinion, and this is where we kind of bring in pillar two of Basel, that that measure, that single measure, should be the basis for supervising inter intervention in larger publicly traded banks if the market for some reason has failed to act. And for those of you who read the, Ameri read the American Banker this morning, we have an ex excellent example of that on the table right now. I won't mention any names, but uh, we have a fairly sizable bank uh, 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 that's FDIC insured, not in the top 100 in size, but uh, getting there, that uh, uh, yesterday uh, closed uh, its, its um, market value of its equity was 46% of just 46 percent of what its uh, book value was at the end of last year and um, uh, has experienced a 97 percent drop in its stock price over the last uh, three years. And I say if you flip to the American Banker this morning, you'll see who that uh, uh, is. To me, this is a classic pillar two type of situation. It absolutely amazes me that the Fed and the FDIC have dragged their feet for two, over two years now in, uh, in dealing more forcibly with this bank and this banking or its owner, its parent holding company, faces a very severe liquidity issue in just 80 days. Um, so finally, let me uh, close by saying that I think regulatory capital standards such as have been proposed in Basel should only be applied to banks that are not large publicly traded banks, which would be smaller banks and uh, uh, mutually owned banks. So I suggest with regard to Pillar 1, which is where most of the concern about Basel is, it should simply be scrapped. 
for uh, the larger uh, banks, the publicly traded ones, where we have a good measure of condition from the marketplace to its stock price, uh, and, uh, and in effect only have pillar one, if you will, for smaller, simpler banks, which, of course, don't need complex capital standards. Thank you very much, and I look forward to our discussion uh, after these presentations. All right. Thank you, Bert. Uh, we've heard from the critics and our next uh, speaker is, uh, is an excellent position to, uh, to defend uh, Basel II. Uh, Gary Willite is a senior vice president of the credit risk management group of Wachovia Bank, where he's been involved in quantitative uh, risk credit management for 14 years uh, while at Wachovia and his predecessors. Uh, he is also responsible for estimating commercial loan default probabilities, loss given default, and use and givage default rates, uh, the, the very type of concepts that, uh, that are intended to be implemented uh, under Basel II. Um, he uh, also uh, is responsible for modeli modeling economic capital for commercial and consumer credit uh, and the credit portion of uh, the bank's uh, Basel efforts. Uh, he has... Uh, uh, Produced numerous publications, including articles in the Risk Management Association Journal and a chapter in a book on economic capital, excuse me, economic capital, a uh, practitioner's guide. Uh, Mr. Willite uh, has an MBA from the University of Virginia. Thanks, Charles. Uh, let me add my thanks to uh, the other speakers for uh, allowing us to come here and, and talk about this uh, this topic. Uh, let me also. Uh, Note that my remarks today are, are my own remarks, not necessarily those of the bank. Um, I'll begin by, by pointing out that uh, with regard to safety and soundness, the bank's interests really are by and large aligned with regulatory interests. Now, we want a safe and sound system. We want safe and sound banks. We ourselves uh, want to be uh, viewed and, and actually to be very safe. Uh, it is not in our interest to be at a point where, uh, where we're not uh, very, very safe institutions. Bert, Bert mentioned uh, market book value. Okay, well, uh, banks do have a considerable market value over and above book value, and, and that doesn't come from the loan portfolio. That comes from all the franchise businesses we have. It would be uh, terrible to destroy that shareholder value. Uh, by, by taking very high risks in the portfolio businesses. Uh, so the, the large banks with big, big franchise values uh, clearly want to be, uh, want to protect those values. Uh, likewise, we do business with other banks. So we, we need to be perceived and be known to the other banks as being very safe institutions to do, uh, to do business or we wouldn't be able to economically do the kind of business we do with other banks. Or, or to economically uh, uh, raise um, debt, debt from, uh, from, from investors. Uh, we also want other banks to be safe. You know, we, we, would, we do not want to advocate a system where there's uh, potentially questions about the safety of other banks. Uh, we, as I said, banks do business with each other. Uh, we don't want to have uh, a bank we are doing business with to, to run into some kind of a credit problem. The, the cost to any of the large banks, if another large bank uh, got into some serious problems, would, would be significant. You know, these are significant costs. And, and, and if the worst thing happens, and, and George has to write a check, 
you know, the, you know, he can turn around and send the bill to the banks to, to replenish the deposit insurance funds. So there's another reason I don't want to have any risk that another large bank is is going to have a, uh, a significant problem with its with capital being enough to cover its risk. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, once we have that kind of capital levels where we are can be sure that banks are safe. You know, we banks uh, want to uh, be able to efficiently use our capital. We don't want to have uh, very high requirements that cause us to hold capital that's, that's not justified from an economic point of view, that, that's inefficient, and there are some uh, negative consequences to that. And uh, we believe that's aligned with, uh, or ought to be aligned with, regulatory uh, views as well uh, that contributes to the health of the banking system. And one of the uh, pieces that, that's in the packet today, we have some quotes from a study the FDIC did uh, looking at the banking crisis of the late 80s and 90s, and they point out some of the negative consequences of overly high capital requirements. So we want to have a safe system. You know, what is the best way then to go about having safe and sound banks. The, the key is uh, to recognize the risks that banks are taking and to make sure the resources are there to cover those risks. And this is not just true of banking, it's true of, of how we all live our lives. You know, we, we look at the risks we face and we adjust to them. And we, we need to promptly correct any kind of imbalance that develops. I mean, as I drove up here this morning, as the traffic got heavy, I slowed down. Okay, I mean, it's, it's how we all uh, live our lives. Uh, so the work, work actually began on, on how do you quantify, how do you measure the kinds of risks you're taking over the last 20 years, and, and particularly coming out of the 19, uh, late 80s and early 90s when there were lots of credit losses. There were also some advances in, uh, in, in finance and uh, in computing power and other things that... that really enabled banks to start working on this very seriously. I joined a, a bank coming out of the real estate problems, you know, around 1990, and uh, uh, we've been trying to uh, uh, improve our, our quantification methods uh, over that period. The, uh, the regulators also recognized that, uh, you know, understanding the amount of risk was very important, that capital alone uh, wasn't the answer. Uh, one of the uh, handouts shows some capital ratios uh, going into um, a banking problem. And you'll see that there's not a great deal of difference between the capital that the, the banks who succeeded uh, had and the banks that failed had going into the problem. The, uh, Bert mentioned uh, Bob Clark. I was on a panel with him about six months ago, and, and he said uh, beforehand that there's no amount of capital that you can reasonably ask all banks to hold that will be sufficient to cover the problem of a particular bank that has a portfolio full of bad loans. It's not the capital. It's the risk. And the coming out of that, uh, that time, the, uh, the, the federal regulatory agencies put in a system of much improved on-site regulation, uh, on-site supervision, with a great deal of attention being paid to the large banks to monitor the risks in the banks, to discuss uh, the risk with uh, bank management and their risk management practices, and to uh, guide banks towards uh, safe and sound practices. 
the, uh, the tools that we have today in quantifying risk improve those discussions. They make them uh, uh, more productive in, in being able to quantify the risk. And that's really what the, the Basel Committee uh, has latched on to with its improved capital requirements. They, they recognize that the capital standards that exist today do not do an adequate job of differentiating risk, of, of measuring how much risk you have. The, uh, the tools that are needed to identify those banks who, who are uh, becoming much riskier is, is not, does not uh, come out of the Basel I rules nor the leverage ratio. A bank can certainly take a great deal of risk if it wanted to and in ways that are not recognized by those uh, formulas and would not send up the red flag. Uh, to identify that more capital is needed. Now, we believe that on-site supervision would, in fact, uh, recognize that, that a bank is taking risky action. Uh, but but the, the tools we have today and in, in the capital requirements uh, would not. Um, this is only going to become more true as as products keep developing and as banks look at other ways to meet the market demand for uh, for credit. Uh, there will be more and more ways that are uh, to to extend credit and to take risks that are not recognized under the uh, formulas that are in place today or the, the regulations that are in place today. So as a banker who wants to make sure that the other banks are safe, I feel much better with the combination of a risk sensitive system with on-site supervision in place to uh, uh, look at how it's being implemented than with very simple capital rules that, that do an inadequate job of recognizing risk. So uh, what has the Basel Committee done? As, as others have said, we have a multi-part uh, capital rule. Uh, the international framework lays out several pillars. Start with pillar one of the numbers. And then we, uh, we look at a pillar two that, that frankly, is modeled after uh, the supervisory framework that's in place in the United States. Uh, the, the pillar one numbers are examined. Uh, in, regulators have to consider how the pillar one numbers are expressed. If, if the pillar one numbers are quite conservative, you can get closer to those numbers. You know, if the pillar num numbers are less conservative or are more dependent on the rising and falling of capital over the business cycle, we would expect that the supervisors would ask those banks to operate above, well above those levels. And banks themselves, as they look at their internal estimates of risk, they're going to make the same judgments as as they uh, use those internal estimates to determine how much capital they hold. We see today that, capital, that, that banks clearly operate uh, with, with capital well in excess of, of the regulatory minimums. So we have uh, the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Uh, in addition, there are transitional arrangements uh, as we head towards the implementation of, of Basel. Uh, there are floors. There's a time period of transition. Uh, in the U.S., uh, we have we do in fact have the leverage ratio. Though we would we would hope that we could revisit those uh, requirements as as confidence develops in Basel, uh, because the the negative things that Bert pointed out we believe are very true. 
I think they're counterproductive in discouraging a bank from taking a very low risk approach and not clear that there's a benefit in creating the biggest disincentive for the banks who take the least risk. So all these transition elements are necessary in order to get to a point where we can use these numbers to determine how much capital a bank would have to hold. Comptroller Dugan said a few months ago that expectations about how much capital is needed should be adjusted, reduced in appropriate cases, when the regulators achieve an appropriate level of comfort that risk is truly reduced. So are we at this end point today before we've begun the work of going through transition and having regulators in-house looking at our numbers? It's really not a surprise that we're not at the end before we start the beginning. The process to deal with this is through consultation, through work with the regulators, through the process of implementing the Pillar 2 requirements have increased the amount of technical validation that each bank has to do, and that's going to all be looked at by supervisors. And we would expect that there will be, you know, an appropriate healthy level of skepticism, but we remain confident that we've done a good job in looking at our numbers and can work through this and provide this level of confidence that the Comptroller spoke about. While this confidence builds, there may be only modest changes in expectation, but that doesn't mean that there would be no changes in expectation. It may not be clear whether a bank could have its numbers go down by 20 percent or 30 percent, but there may be no dispute that the number is at least 10 percent. So we can start building through that as we develop more confidence in the numbers. There are many tools that banks use and that regulators can use with us to examine numbers and build confidence. We can benchmark. We can look at what comparable portfolios need, and we believe that that's going to be an important tool that's going to be used on the path to fully getting to where Basel promises to lead us. So, again, I think that these tools are the better way to a safe and sound system. We can pretend that the simple measures capture risk and take a false comfort in them, but that's really not a good way to operate. Several of the speakers were talking before the meeting, and someone recalled that the capital requirements are lower for residential mortgages, but we've seen in the past that there are ways to take lots of risk with residential mortgages, and hopefully we'll only see a little bit of that in the next few years, but clearly there are more risky and less risky types of any loan, and we need a system that can recognize that so that the banks who would choose to take those risks, if there are any, again, I think that large banks would recognize that the threat to franchise value is such that 
that uh, we wouldn't want to uh, jeopardize that. But uh, in those cases where there are high risk, we need a system that can recognize it. And uh, the Basel system is, is the right way to get there. There's a, no doubt that there's a plenty of work that needs to be done, work between the banks and the regulators. And there's really not a substitute for doing that work. Uh, we could we could start on that road today or we can give the rest of the world a five or ten year head start. But that doesn't mean that the work doesn't need to be done. If we if we give the rest of the world a ten year head start, we'll still have to do the work to build confidence in the U.S. Uh, and there are some negative consequences to that competitive effects that I don't think are good. So we may as well get going uh, as quickly as we can with these better rules. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Uh, We're pleased to have a representative from the uh, FDIC join us as, uh, as the final speaker on uh, this morning's panel. Uh, George French uh, began his career with the FDIC in 1986 when he joined as a, a financial economist. Uh, Mr. French is currently Deputy Director for Policy and Examination Oversight in the FDIC's Division of Supervision and Consumer Protection. He oversees the development of uh, supervisory policies with respect to banks' safety and soundness and bank regulatory capital, and he has been extensively involved in the developments of the new Basel II capital standards. Mr. French. Thank you, Charles. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here to present the um, views of the FDIC on the Basel process. Um, I'm going to try to stick to the, to the party line, so to speak, on, the, uh, on our views on Basel, but I'm also if, run the risk always in these things of expressing myself in a fairly idiosyncratic way. And so none of that should reflect on the FDIC. This is, this is my, uh, my way of presenting the issues. Um, I'm going to start by going back a little bit in, uh, in history and, uh, and back to 1999 when the, when the Basel process was kicked off with the first consultative paper <coughs> and its so-called CP1. Uh, if you were to uh, open that paper and turn it to page one and start reading, within one minute you would have uh, read some very important statements. Uh, you would have read in the first sentence that we've decided to to scrap Basel I, and then we are now seeking comment on how to do it. Uh, very soon thereafter, you would read uh, that the Basel Committee does not intend for there to be any reduction in overall capital requirements as a result of the Basel process. No reduction. Okay, I kid you not. It's on page one of, of CP1. Uh, very soon thereafter, you would read about how the Basel Committee intends there to be capital parity between banks using internal ratings and those that do not. And uh, then deeper into the document, you'd read about how the committee is thinking about using internal ratings in some limited way, but recognizes that there's considerable subjectivity in, involved in the development of those internal ratings, and therefore their use will be limited. Um, so you've right there, you've got two important sort of fundamental assumptions, uh, no reduction in capital and capital parity in terms of the, the competitive dynamic. You go on to uh, 2001 when the committee published its second consultative paper and you have an important conceptual change in the way it's presented. Um, 
the committee says that it's come to their attention that uh, certain large banks are now uh, reliably, accurately and objectively producing the key internal ratings that are needed to run an advanced approach. And so we're going to base regulatory capital on, on a set of formulas that uses those uh, internal ratings as inputs. So I would say that's that's the third important grounding assumption, you know, what, dating way back to 2001, is these these inputs we're building off the things banks are already doing and they're objective, they're reliable. So we're going to use them. Uh, and finally, I would say the fourth sort of grounding assumption is um, if we find out somewhere down the road that our assumptions were not met, we'll change the process, we'll change the approach. So don't worry. So basically you have in place some assumptions that make it really very difficult for anybody to disagree uh, with the advanced approach. It's a technical improvement in risk measurement. It's not going to reduce capital. It's not going to have competitive effects. It's based on objective, quantifiable things that are already being done. And by the way, we'll change it if we ever find out anything different. And so that I would say that's that's those are four important uh, statements that sort of help to build consensus around Basel II. And so what I would like to do is sort of reflect a little bit on on where we are with respect to those four key assumptions and how they have played out or not played out over time. And then what do we do about the fact that where we are now is that it, it looks like really some or all of those assumptions are uh, not playing out in quite the way that we anticipated when we started. Uh, and, and I'd like to talk a little bit about from the perspective of a, of a pure Basel II and an a, uh, an unsullied Basel II that was free of all the elements that uh, Gary doesn't like and that, uh, you know, that the uh, banking industry would like us to move to ultimately to a pure risk based system with no leverage ratio and, and none of the bells and whistles in, in the uh, notice of proposed rulemaking. What would it look like? Well, let me there's a handout and let me uh, direct your attention to the second uh numbered slide, which is a, a display of reductions in capital requirements uh, that the QIS-4 uh, indicated. And especially uh, just uh, you see a lot of negative numbers there, and especially uh, the second row on uh, the tier one capital requirements, tier one capital being the, the high quality capital that's available to absorb losses on a going concern basis. And you really have some significant reductions there. Uh, the dollar weighted average being a 22 percent uh, reduction, uh, half the banks having a, a 31 percent reduction or more. So you're talking, you know, among the 26 largest banks in the United States, a frequent occurrence of 30, 40 and more percent reductions in capital requirements. So just on the face of that, it doesn't seem to square well with that first assumption that we talked about. We're not going to drastically reduce capital. This kind of looks like we are drastically reducing the capital requirements. Um, and of course, why do we care? Well, you know, if we if we end the day by substantially reducing the capital that backs up the, the industry's portfolio of, of risks, then we we may not have improved the safety and soundness of the system. We may have done exactly the opposite. Um, and I would say when you look at those results, you know, 
mortgages being a good example, you see a substantial minority of those 26 banks with 90 percent or more reductions in their capital requirements for mortgages, really going down measured uh, capital measured in basis points and not percentage points. Um, that the, that, the, that the, you're really struck by the idea that it, it may be Basel II. It may be the advanced approach that's, that's more at risk of doing an inadequate job of providing an adequate capital cushion. Um, and, and Gary's points about the leverage ratio are certainly on the mark to the extent that we know the leverage ratio doesn't capture all risks. Um, but financial leverage is a risk factor. Uh, and, uh, you know, we think it complements the operation of the risk-based system, captures sort of a different dimension of risk. Um, you know, and I would emphasize also that these numbers do not reflect any behavioral changes and a move towards safer assets. They're just a redefinition. We're just declaring that the existing portfolio is less risky and needs less capital. Okay, so um, another slide that I'm not really going to talk about, but I'd be glad to to uh, discuss this at length with anybody offline. I mean, there is been a, there's been an important line of discussion about let's not worry about QIS4 because, after all, it was taken during a good time in the business cycle and uh, the data was not fully validated and in the future things would look different. Well, um, there is an important and I would say very credible line of thought that goes uh, that, in fact, in dollar-weighted terms, the risk inputs the banks used in QIS4 were more bearish than the framework would require. And I'd be glad to, 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 to go into that at length with anybody who'd like to do so afterwards. But, but to that extent, if that's true, then it, it suggests that QIS4 has not yet begun to fully explore the reductions in capital that are possible under this approach. Um, what about the, the assumption about uh, competitive parity that was made in CP1? We're not we're going to we envision parity. Well, I mean, subsequently, the committee sort of amended that and said we want to have some capital based incentives for banks to move on to the system. Uh, and that's entirely appropriate. Uh, the magnitude of those incentives right now, if you took, again, a pure Basel II with no constraints, no leverage, the magnitude of those uh, incentives look to be very large. Um, it, you know, you see numbers like, uh, you know, half the risk weight uh, for a commercial real estate loan. For most commercial real estate loans, uh, for, the, for the Basel II adopters as compared to, you know, the other domestic banks uh, with 100% risk weight. You know, there's big differences for small business lending. I won't read every number. You can, you can read the numbers. Uh, on the retail, on the next page, page five, you see some striking differences. Uh, you know, the most notable, just for example, on home equity loans, most banks would have a 100 percent risk weight for your typical home equity loan, uh, about a 19 percent risk weight for, for the Basel II on, uh, in the QIS4, a five times, five-fold, uh, five times more capital for the Basel, for the non-adopters. And even the, the, the identical securities, the community bank holds a, a Fannie or Freddie MBS, and an advanced bank holds a Fannie or Freddie MBS. You're looking at a 20 risk weight versus a 7 risk weight. I mean, so there's, there are considerable differences in, uh, in, in risk weights here. And, 
it's not clear what all that means in the U.S. when we have a leverage ratio, but nevertheless, it's an issue to look at. And it doesn't look like that parity assumption really played out <clears throat> the way we thought it would either. Um, in terms of the objective and reliable uh, risk weights and, and default probabilities, loss given default uh, exposure, the assumptions that uh, the banks are developing for their portfolios, um, the, the slide uh, number six that talks about differences in capital requirements for similar exposures goes into a little of that. And, and this was an exercise that an interagency team of examiners uh, did in the follow-up on QIS4. They kind of drilled down a little deeper into uh, a selected group of seven banks. They queried them, you know, if we gave you a standardized you know, 660 FICO, 80 percent loan to value. Uh, these are the loan terms. What would your system spit out for for probability of default, loss given default, exposure and the resulting risk weight? And the results uh, were all over the map in this particular example. You know, the risk weights range from less than one percent to almost 75 percent, a 75 fold difference. And this was not isolated to this example. I mean, they looked at fixed rate. 30-year fixed, interest only. Uh, they found in, uh, in wholesale credit that, uh, you know, identical shared national credits that were participated out across banks had significant differences uh, in capital there. So really the finding was that um, bank systems, um, and by the way, this is not meant as a shot at banks' internal ratings because the agencies have always found that the banks, for their internal purposes, have done a good job of relatively ranking the risks. Okay, so that may be what was reliable to some extent, is they're doing a pretty good job of ranking the risks internally for their own purposes. But when you talk about comparing across banks and assigning absolute levels to the probability of default, is it 0.01 or is it 0.05, you know, that type of thing is the LGD 20 or 40. Uh, there's a wide range of uh, permissible methodologies for estimating those things, and uh, nobody really knows the answer. So, you know, when you look at these numbers and you step back and talk about Basel II being a correct measure of risk that requires a deep capital cushion uh, against the risks, well, which one do you mean? You know, is it is the Bank F with a 75 percent risk weight? Is that the one that is the correct measure of risk, or is it the 1% risk weight? And, you know, so um, it, it raises some fairly fundamental issues. Uh, and I think one of the issues it raises is that what we're really doing here, and given the permissible variation in methodologies and so forth, and the fact that really you're going to have to tolerate a certain amount of ambiguity under this framework and subjectivity, we're really moving away from the idea of regulatory capital to some extent. It's kind of in effect, although this has not been said, I don't think anybody really officially believes this is the policy, but in effect it may be that we're moving towards a more supervisory case-by-case -case approach to determining capital and away from simple and transparent hard and fast numbers. And uh, people can disagree on whether that's a good thing. Um, you know, we had some experience with that in the U.S. We didn't have formal minimum regulatory capital until the mid-'80s. It turned out the case-by-case -case supervisory approach didn't seem to work very well when it came to a 
series of crises uh, that you, you really needed supervisors really needed the support of a black and white regulation to help them do their jobs and keep the banks uh, generally out of trouble. Okay, so, you know, there's the, the, the negative uh, part of the presentation. There's a number of significant issues, uh, and that fourth grounding principle that will change it when we see a problem, is it's not that easy to, to do. And um, when you start talking about changing it, people look at you like you're crazy. So it's... Um, you know, we're kind of in a position where we have a system that's been put into place in Europe and, uh, you know, put in law in the EU and starting to be implemented around the world. And yet, you know, we have these issues and concerns. Um, so how can we get the benefits, which are there are benefits? You know, we're, we see improvements in bank risk management as a result of this whole process. Uh, you know, there's going to be better information potentially available to the supervisors. How can we get those benefits uh, while dealing with these other issues. And, uh, I mean, uh, Chairman Baer has stated that the FDIC's position on a number of occasions, and I'll just repeat it. I mean, we're not, uh, we have a concern about the potential for uh, open-ended, uh, unconstrained reductions in risk-based capital uh, after the floors come off. And uh, we would like to see some fairly ob objective and transparent uh, controls put into place to uh, clearly limit how much this thing is going to go down uh, in terms of capital. And if we had that, you know, if you have a, a more certain uh, comfort level about the outcome, then you can probably get rid of a lot of the sort of unique and uh, prescriptive elements when you look at a 500-page NPR and, uh, you know, that doesn't conform to Europe and, and whatnot, doesn't conform to the mid-year text. A lot of that is put in because of a, a, a deep lack of discomfort, a deep lack of comfort with the with the with the framework. Uh, using definition of default, for example, the latitude banks have to choose their own definition of default can swing capital by 20, 20 percent. Uh, so if we let them decide, then we're, we're admitting a more variation. So if we want to peel back and make it less prescriptive, maybe we you know, maybe we can do that if we have a little more certainty in terms of what the outcome that results. So that's sort of a high-level view of uh, the general vision that we'd like to see. We'd like to see it less complicated, less prescriptive, and a little more clear in terms of how it's all going to play out in, in the capital outcome. Um, I want to get sit down pretty quickly because I know we want some discussion. In terms of the international competitive dimension um, that uh, people talk about, if we have a more conservative framework, what is that going to mean? Well, I think we've had a laboratory for that in the U.S. for 15 years with PCA. Uh, we, we have our banks are more than have more than twice the capital on a leverage basis, more than twice the return on assets. Uh, you know, we think we have a regulatory culture that has tolerated and, and fostered innovation and risk-taking in the industry and, um, you know, that the industry is doing very well. There's a, uh, you know, U.S. banks have a slightly lower return on equity than uh, European banks when you look at the top ten. Um, not surprising given that we have twice the capital. Uh, and the, uh, but on the other hand, the financial strength ratings, at least by Moody's, uh, shows that we have stronger banks. Uh, you know, so we have profitable banks and strong banks. We think we've been doing all right, and we, we don't think we're talking about dramatically changing that 
going forward. So that's all I have and look forward to the discussion. All right. Thank you, George. Uh, we're going to, uh, to go ahead and move into the, uh, the question and answer session of this. Um, and, and I guess just starting off, um, uh, Gary, since you're the, the, the ultimate defender of this uh, here, I would just uh, you know, like for you to react a little bit to, uh, to the concepts of, uh, uh, of uh, the discrepancy of capital requirements that would exist for the larger banks that implement this. Um, and, and you know, whether it, uh, that would present a problem for the market it, for these banks that are implementing advanced approaches to have lower capital than, than banks that are not been implementing. The, uh, I think all the, the, the banks have, have commented as we looked at the uh, proposed regulation that, that we need a, a system where there's equitable uh, rules uh, uh, across banks. Uh, a number of speakers have pointed out that some differences between uh, a, a larger and smaller banks we, we, we can recognize in the uh, uh, practical matter that the smaller banks typically do hold considerably more capital um, th than uh, than the minimums uh, today, and we we wouldn't expect that to change. The business model for the smallest banks are, are clearly different than the uh, uh, the way the largest banks uh, do business, and uh, we don't think those things are are going to change. So that. Uh, uh, Changes in, in these, these uh, capital requirements we should not disrupt the uh, uh, relationship between the largest banks and the smallest banks. I think that the uh, 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 banks that are, are fairly large uh, do need to demonstrate to the market that they have a good understanding of their risk, um, in, such as the banks who would uh, uh, have the numbers to do uh, the, the advanced uh, IRB process. So uh, uh, we think that there would be pressure on banks of, of fairly substantial size to uh, adopt the uh, methodologies, whether they adopt the, uh, the practice for regulatory purposes uh, is, is, is up to them, but uh, certainly to adopt the methodologies for internal purposes that can give the market confidence that they have a, a good uh, handle on their risks. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, we'll turn to the uh, to the audience for questions. Yeah. Um, I have a question with regard to some big banks in the capital. At least one bank, big bank, is qualified for CSC, consolidated supervised entity treatment, for their broker dealer through the SEC. Does that remove them? I mean, those are lower capital than they would otherwise hold. Does that remove them from banking agencies' application of fossil fossil two? I don't think the bank that you're talking about would be a mandatory Basel II bank under the rules, which the mandatory banks under the proposal were those with more than $250 billion in uh, insured bank assets or uh, more than $10 billion in foreign exposure. So I think that particular bank, I suspect, is not a mandatory bank, although I think that uh, it's probably considering uh, an opt-in approach. Yeah, they opt in. Um, it would be, I mean, CSC rules already up in 
Well, um, the, the short answer is I don't know. But uh, I think, uh, you know, you, as a bank, as an insured bank, it wouldn't be subject until it was until the rules were fully phased in for, for the banks. Sir. Yeah. Doesn't exempt the holding company from right. from yes right. Continue. And explore with a little bit more on pillar two. Because your analysis of the QIS four was really an analysis of the impact of pillar one only, and you expressed some reservation with case by case supervision. We're only talking about one next year, and certainly many of these categories of assets that you listed. We don't, uh, dis- we don't disagree with you that Pillar 2 is, is a very important part of the uh, regulatory, the whole set of tools that we have to uh, promote safety and soundness. It, it's absolutely essential. But at the same time, uh, we, don't, we don't see that it can, can uh, claw back. Uh, we don't, we're worried about its, its ability to claw back capital from an inadequate uh, regulatory structure. I mean, if we've, we need to have comfort with the regulatory capital rules themselves. Uh, we can't just hope that the, the supervisory process is able to overcome uh, the shortcomings. I mean, that's our, that's our view of it. Question for Bert. I wanted to elaborate a little bit more to the point that you made about as the grand market the risk increases the great incentive to shed quality assets I would have thought work together around so we could explain a little bit more if I understand. Okay, okay, that's a very good point. It's a subtle aspect of this. Um, let's take residential mortgages as an example today. Uh, you, whether the mortgage is, uh, let's say, a 50% LTV or a 90% LTV, it's going to have the same uh, risk weight. Under Basel II, where the granularity gets introduced, the capital requirement for that 50% LTV mortgage is going to be a lot less under the risk-based than uh, will be the, uh, the case with the, uh, the 90% LTV mortgage. So for that reason, the capital gap, if you will, differential between the leverage ratio on the one hand and the requirement uh, uh, under the risk-based system is going to be much greater for the uh, 50% LTV loan and a 90% LTV loan. And it's that gap that creates the incentive to shed assets because what the banks have to do is they, 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 they in order to optimize their capital and to earn a market rate of return, given the fact that they're competing not against other banks but also against securitization and non-regulated institutions, they have to bring their risk-adjusted capital pretty close in line with what their uh, uh, the, the leverage requirements 
taking into account the cushion that they're, that they're all going to maintain over those minimums. And so in order to close that gap, you either have to load up the bank with riskier assets, let's say credit card receivables, or uh, if you can only go so far with that, then what you want to do is shed your lowest risk assets so and, and put more of your, your asset dollars into higher risk assets that don't have the capital uh, gap between what's required under the risk base versus what's required under the, uh, under the leverage ratio. And today, there is no uh, capital benefit, if you will, of shedding the lowest risk assets under Basel II, under particularly the advanced approach. Uh, it becomes a very powerful incentive to shed the lowest risk assets. So your, your point holds when you have the grand already existing underneath a leverage ratio system. That's correct. If you didn't have the leverage ratio, then the point that, that is very true. In fact, I would say that uh, the point goes away. In other words, this is the perverse interaction between the leverage ratio on the one hand and, uh, and risk-based capital on the other. You know, take a look at George's figures on the differences between U.S. and American uh, banks. It may be that European banks have lower capital ratios because on, on balance, they have lower risk balance sheets. Uh, uh, banks can do a lot, uh, as we all know, to, to adjust their risk level. And uh, uh, my concern is what the risk, what the leverage ratio is doing is forcing up, uh, or forcing banks to uh, basically raise the uh, average riskiness of their balance sheet. The, the article uh, in your handouts with my, with my name provides an illustration that uh, speaks to George's point, uh, to, to Bert's point. I would say I, I think that uh, it's a good, you know, it's a compelling theory. Uh, it might not be as simple. I mean, why are U.S. banking organizations, why have they, those that, that had mortgage affiliates that were making subprime alternative uh, adjustable rate mortgages, the 228s, 327s, they were shedding those. And they were not keeping, you know, if, if those were sort of risky assets that were, whose capital was too low, in, in your paradigm, they should be holding those assets rather than shedding them. Um, I, and I, my comeback on that would be under Basel, too. I think they, uh, uh, they would hold because, again, if you want to have a, a safe bank and there's no capital penalty to hold uh, lower-risk assets, that's what you would do. My concern with Basel, too, is you'll flip that around and there will be a greater incentive to hold the, uh, the subprime mortgages and, uh, and but at the same time to shed the, uh, uh, the, the lower risk uh, mortgages such as uh, arms with uh, low uh, LTVs. Professor? This can be very bad for the past 30 years that we've had news on already. Uh, at the same time that CP1 came out, same year, Congress passed a revolutionary uh, financial services diversification uh, legislation, the Bandage Plowback Act, with the Basel II uh, implemented for the largest and most internationally active banks. What would be the translation into what is required to be well capitalized, both for financial holding company status and for the ability to have financial subsidiaries engaged in uh, security commercial banking, uh, in the case of financial it gets consolidated up uh, to the holding company level and, and, and 
the, the Basel rules apply, there's still some question in the uh, uh, latest uh, NPR about how to treat uh, insurance. Uh, but uh, beyond, beyond that, uh, I think the, the, the real answer is that it, it's consolidated to the holding company level. You may have to report and, and capitalize uh, certain significant subsidiaries uh, on their own, but uh, yeah. uh, that's. I think there's. There is no. Under Grandview's plan, each insured depository institution must be still capitalized. What will that mean? It will mean if, if the notice of proposed rulemaking was taken as the final rule, then it would mean that you'd have to have at the insured institution. Uh, your capital, uh, the relevant capital measure, either tier one or total, would have to exceed, for example, total capital would have to exceed 10 percent of risk-weighted assets as measured by uh, the new process. Well, they, they, I guess they're saying de facto banks uh, want to hold a cushion over that. Yeah. All right, I believe we have time for one more question, Mr. Taylor. I think Bert's comments generally agree with regarding the leverage ratio. Uh, what I always suppose is things like putting rather strange and uh, a very detailed way of saying shedding good assets is the thing you have to worry about. Banks which use the realistic such as the leverage ratio. My question for Peter and for George would be what, what makes you sure a leverage ratio provides some comfort. But why do you feel good about a leverage ratio when 20 years ago I can absolutely see why you would. In the absence of capital markets, assets would be prosperous. You could be a big company. If a bank had a fair amount of capital in relation to assets, you are not going to make it. Today, when you can take on so much risk, over and above what's represented by your assets, and remember the risk assets are not. Why do you feel good about the bank and the high you need both. You, if, you, if you have a leverage ratio, clearly it's going to miss certain types of risks that you're absolutely right. You need a risk-based capital framework. If you don't have a leverage ratio and you just have a risk-based capital framework, for example, using the advanced approach as an example, we have sl- we're slicing and dicing credit risk, operational risk, and market risk. We're not looking at interest rate risk in the banking book, liquidity risk, concentration risk, uh, business and strategic risk, and moreover, the things that we are looking at, we are we are looking at in a highly assumption-driven way, and so what the leverage ratio picks up is essentially the the risk that the that the risk-based system itself fails and does not provide adequate capital, which is a very real, very real possibility. You know, I, I think that's really my you also, and, and that is that I'm very distrustful at this stage of a model system. And I don't think we know enough about it, how it would work. Um, models in general are um, difficult uh, to perceive as actually replicating the real world in any way. And so I do see the leverage ratio as kind of an insurance policy. Yes, that's right. 
That's right. It's at least at least something that we can rely on until we see whether Basel really works. All right. I want to thank uh, the members of the panel for taking the time to uh, to speak with us this morning. Uh, my understanding is, is lunch uh, is going to be served in this room, uh, so we're going to need to step out in the lobby for a few minutes as as they do the setup. Thank you.